Comets in Motion is proud to be sponsored by Renovations Press, home of the world-renowned tracksuit man, the story about traveling to which we can all relate and something we've all missed this last year. Renovations Press continues to make the decades-long quest to bring quality, independent comics to the masses with three comics each year featuring the supergroup slash government experiment gone wrong, section 12. Click the link in the show notes for more information about how you can buy some high-quality, independent comics. And stay tuned because each time a new issue comes out in 2021, Comics in Motion listeners will be eligible to win free copies of Section 12. Click that link, check out Renovations Press, support them on Patreon. You'll be happy you did. What started as just an appearance on Indie Comics Spotlight has turned into an excellent partnership between Comics in Motion and Renovations Press. We look forward to bringing you some amazing content. Hi, my name's Steve. And I'm here to tell you all about the DC Comics News Podcast. Every week, my friends and I sit down and discuss everything DC. Movies, TV and streaming, comic books, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Whatever the case, you can find the DC Comics News Podcast on every podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere else you find podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. series, your graphic novel from a company other than the big two. The hope here is that we can do a deep dive on an indie comic you may have missed or give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites with us on social media afterwards. I'm your host, Tony Farina of DC Comics News and Fantastic Universes. I've been reading comics since I was 12, and while I love a good superhero battle, I gravitate towards indie comics and standalone graphic novels because they give artists a chance to connect with readers in different ways and tell stories they may not have been able to tell with traditional comics or traditional novels. I hope that you enjoyed the show. All right, well, this week an Indie Comic Spotlight, because we're handling a topic that is so massive that there's 0% chance you can handle it with just one person. So at his recommendation, guest one of Classic Comics with Matthew B. Lloyd, Matthew B. Lloyd. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you, Tony, today? Van Kelly. <laughs> right. And at your insistence, this was all you. This is my show, but this is Matt's idea. So... Also, Kel Gaines. Welcome back, Kelly. How are you, friend? Hello, hello. Doing good, doing good. And Excellent. thank you for having me on. Oh, man, it's joy always to have you on. And, and as our last uh, appearance when Kelly was on, we got to talk to Cullen. Fun. It was so great. He was so great with this time. And then if you haven't, I'm going to link back to not only our interview with Cullen Bunn, but he was so awesome. He actually, she had 17,000 questions and he answered everyone. And she wrote them up and published them at Fantastic Universes. So I'll link to that too, just because 
everybody needs to see that. So um, I've got great guests, writers, historians, thinkers, amazing people here. So we'll start with you. So our classic comics guru with Matthew B. Lloyd, this is your idea to do this. So give everybody a brief history of why you came up with this idea. And then we'll kind of go through and tell our um, early experiences with fables before we really get into it. So, so why I wanted all three of us to talk? Is that Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, well, for one thing, it's it's one of my favorite comics of all time, all, all time favorite series. Uh, uh, I had such a great experience with you uh, talking about uh, what the spirit and the shield and stuff like that, that I thought this is a place where I could talk about it. And then having heard uh, Kelly on the two shows about Harrow County and then hearing later on that she... Uh, love fables so much sounded like me i thought it'd be a great opportunity to discuss it uh and get the information out there to people so that other people could find it but i thought it's always fun to share things with people that have like interests so i haven't spoken to kelly before in a situation like this so i thought it's a perfect opportunity to get to talk to her as well as talk about something that both of us love that's why i wanted to do it that's awesome that's perfect i didn't realize is this the first time you guys have spoken in real life, Kelly and Matt? Yeah, non-virtually. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, you know. We're I mean, all, yeah, we're all in different I mean, states, actually. I guess, yes. I guess if this is real life, then yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not in writing, not in our Slack channel. This is you. Speaking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> nice. Well, I didn't realize Matthew B. Lloyd, Kelly Gaines, meet each other. Hello. Hi, Kelly. Um, good afternoon. <laughs> good afternoon. So, Kelly, what is, what about you? So, when when Matt came up with this idea, you were all on it immediately. So, what 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 is it about? He saw you saying this is one of your favorite series. So, what is it about that? That what is it that you liked? Before we get into when did you first discover it, but what is it about this that hooked you? I so I mean I think it this kind of ropes into how I first discovered it. So this was this was one of the first oh, okay. comic series that I read read. Um, and to talk about it with anyone, because I, I have never been able to find anyone who also read it <laughs> to talk about it with. So you said fables, and I was like, oh my God, yes, like when? Sign me up. Because <laughs> I mean, it is just, it, it's a fantastic series, but again, it's it's long, it's a lot going on, big, big break in the middle. So I just, I haven't met a ton of people who can discuss it really. Nice, okay, that's totally fair. And so for me, and then we'll come back around to you, Matt, so you can tell us your experience with it. So, well, wait, Kelly, you didn't read it. So it came out in July of 2002. It ended in July of 2015. There's some um, spinoffs and there's some uh, follow-up series. There's all kinds of things. It's hard to actually know. I've looked, there's lots of things out there that tell you the proper reading order to read this. And I think everyone should come at it on their own because for me, um, so in 2002, when it started coming out, I had, I was um, I was married to my first wife, but we were in the process of splitting up, and I was broke, and I was a single dad, and so libraries were my friends, and so Vertigo, Shelley Bond, was uh, excellent at being one of the first uh, groups of, of publishers of comics to like put out collected works as trade paperbacks and allow them the library edition. So I was reading this probably between 2000, well, the whole time, here and there, whatever I could grab. I'm standing in the library. Oh, 
there's something, there's the crossover episode. That one was always sitting out. So I would just grab it, not necessarily knowing what was going on. So it was almost like the way that I first read comics when I'd go to flea markets and I would just get whatever was available. So for me, I never, until this reading, I have never read fables in a row in the proper publishing order, which I still don't argue is the proper reading order. I think you could skip some to get the main gist of the story. It's kind of like skipping the customs house when you read Scarlet Letter. Do you need that? Do you? Could you skip that and get the same experience? So I feel like there's some of that. So for me, this was exciting to go back. And I, I didn't realize there were some stories that I had never even read before. So that was exciting. Um, so that's my experience with it just over the last 20 years since it's been out is here and there grabbing books where I could for free from the library. Um, and so again, when you guys come up with it, it's like sweet. It'll be fun to go back and actually see it all through this new lens, but also from that nostalgia point of view. So that's me. So Mr. Lloyd. Let's turn the clock back to DC's terrible decision to do the new 52. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, that's where it starts for me. So not at 2002 when it first came out. Um, this is a time where I was not really excited about what was happening with DC with the new 52. That doesn't mean I didn't try a lot of titles to start with. Uh, but I did because like, well, it's DC. It's my favorite, you know, share universe company. So I'm gonna, I can't just go like screw you and not read anything. Um, I mean, part of me wanted to, but I couldn't. So, and of course the first few books that I, uh, I uh, found that I enjoyed the most were Swamp Thing, Demon Knights, and uh, uh, Frankenstein, Agent of Shade, the sort of off-to-the-side books, not the main character, the main DC stalwart books. So that's nothing uh, unique for me. That, that happens all the time, usually. Um, but and I don't know if I saw uh, house ads for some of the trades that were coming out at the time, but I know in the comic shop, I did see... Uh, uh, the Vertigo Madame Xanadu series at the time by Matt Wagner was uh, being published. And the issue that I saw on the shelf was one of the Kaluta issues. So remembering him from drawing that Madame Xanadu special back in 1980, 81, something like that. I was like, oh man, maybe I should check this out. But it's like issue, you know, I don't remember the issue number, let's say 20. Well, there's a bunch of other issues beforehand. I don't usually just jump in and go if I can find something earlier. So I decided I'm going to try something different. And at the same time, like I said, I had seen a house ad or something for fables and thought that's different. That's more along the lines of the odd or stuff in the DC universe. Like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go on Amazon. I'm going to get the first trade of fables and Madam Xanadu. And I did, and I read it and uh, was hooked right from the outset. I just thought this is a great idea. It reminded me of, uh, do you remember the old uh, fractured fairy tales from uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle? Yeah. It, it, it had that kind of, not the same vibe, but a similar take on how do you deal with uh, these fairy tales. And they're familiar, but then there's a twist that makes them different, whether they're tragic or funny or, or you know, just ridiculous. Uh, and it gave me that same sort of vibe. And I just really liked it. And I just started getting the trades. I'd read one and get another one, read one. And of course, I had to take uh, breaks here and there just because, you know, you can't order a trade every couple of weeks. Or... Even though you desperately want to. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm watching the, the regular issues come out going, 
um, I don't, and I, I, I felt like I don't want to jump in and just start buying the floppies because I'm going to be, you know, eight volumes off or whatever it was. I'd be, I'm going to be somewhere. What's go, what, what's going to happen? And, you know, as we know, if we've read it, there are certain things that are revealed that if you discover them too early, you could be like, what, what, no, what, what? you know, that kind of thing. So I didn't want to do that. Something told me just get them in order. It's a big, ginormous, long series with a, obvious, a, a huge storyline he's got planned out. I'm just going to tough it out and, and get all the trades. And I just got them all. And eventually I caught up to where I was. At. I'm pretty sure I caught up to where I was waiting for the last one to come out. You know, like issue 150 came out and I was able to get the trade for the last one, like as soon as it came out. Um, and of course, along the way, I picked up the fairest trades also. I never got into Jack ones, but that's that's what I have, I guess, next to get it. We can get in that later, but yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's that, that's how I got into it. And that's that's what it was. That That's why I'm here today, because, you know, well, I'm here today because it's great. But yeah, it is I, I picked I picked it up because I was dissatisfied with what I was reading normally and really wanted something different. I think that's fair. And I think that's why, and I know we're breaking the rules and I've had some Vertigo titles on my show before, because I don't feel, I feel like Vertigo, um, I had a Minx, I had Cecil on and we talked about a Minx title, her Plain Janes. I think what DC is really good at is recognizing that, that there are people like, you know, they're, they're willing to distribute an indie comic and get a, get a kickback and allow things to happen. And other than Sandman, the, most of their Vertigo titles are not in the DC universe. Now, granted, there's some moments in this book where they're like reading Superman comics, somebody's got a Superman shirt on and stuff, but they're acknowledging that those are comics. They're not real. So, so they're adjacent to the world. So I really enjoy a book that is that. And I think that's where Vertigo, why, and I'm really sad that Vertigo has gone. I know it's called Black Label now, but but it's not it's not really though it's it isn't that's just a different publishing imprint so they can do things that aren't appropriate for all right. readers or whatever because it's not necessarily only vertigo type 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 because yeah, batman's so, right cat batman catwoman is over yeah. there and there's some other yeah. stuff. yeah so yeah i i appreciate this for what it is so so kelly you didn't come at it from day one though so you was it the same you found trades or did you pick up floppies first did you like pick up issue 30 and we're like, oh shit, what's going on? <laughs> so it was, um, it, it was definitely trades. Cause I, in 2002, I was in second grade. So there was, it wasn't, uh, <laughs> you know, it oh, wasn't exactly on my reading list. <laughs> but it's funny. Cause I, I have something very in common with how both of you came to this, which I started with trades and it actually, during the new 52, I had I had started going, or I think it was when I first or kind of first started regularly going into one specific comic shop and I picked up a bunch of new 52 and I was like, you know, I'm really enjoying reading comics, but I'm not really enjoying reading these comics. So I went to the library because I'd spent all my money and got the, um, what was it? The Cinderella spinoff first. Oh, so that wow. was the first thing nice. I read. Nice. And I, I, I liked it. I, I don't remember it that well. And because it's a library book, I couldn't reread it. <laughs> But um, yeah, so I started with that and then, you know, immediately was like, okay, so I need to read the rest of this. So started buying the trades and then, yeah, it just, from there, it spiraled into an all out, all consuming obsession for a couple years. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it is, it's a, it's a 12 year, 13 year saga um, that takes place really over all of recorded history. So he's, you know, Willingham is cramming, you know, 
uh, thousands of years of, of mythology and history into um, you know, 13 years of comics while doing these spinoffs, while like, we're going to just take a break and watch Wolf go into World War II for two issues. And we're going to do, you know, so he, um, there's a lot. It is a lot. And uh, it's overwhelming sometimes. Uh, but but you, we all made it. And here we are. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So let's, and I'm so, so geeked about this. So let's, because time is of the essence. Is Cal, everybody, listen, this is Cal's lunch. She gave us, gave up lunch to do this. So <laughs> This is, so we appreciate your time. So let's, oh, anytime. We, we don't want to spoil too much, but we do want to acknowledge what it is um, and the idea behind it. So um, the, the brief kind of synopsis is um, in lower Manhattan, there's, there's an area called Fable Town and um, the, some of the fables that we know and love live there. And they, they have blended in with the Mundies, which are the name for the mundane. And then upstate New York, there's the farm where the non-human entities live. Um, that, and what we discover is that back in the homeland, there's an adversary who is a fable gone bad and they've all run away. And so they are literally, um, there was an exodus and they are now all um, essentially you know, seeking asylum in the United States. And that's the setup. Snow White is, is, is essentially running a fable town. Um, old, was it Mayor King Cole? Is oh, really King Cole, yeah, yeah. But he's yeah. awful. He's an incompetent <laughs> boob. And uh, Snow White he's just is a figure. Church. He's a figurehead. He's, he's a figurehead. figurehead. <laughs> well, I did want to start with her. I want to start with, for me, and this is why I'm so glad you're here, Kel, because, you know, two white dudes talking about women's issues. So let's, <laughs> let's, deal with Snow White really technically being in charge. And what is your take as a woman on how like the strength of women are in this series writ large, Snow White in particular, her sister a little bit, but I think, you know, beast or beauty is important. Obviously you said the first thing you came to was Cinderella, who's a badass in this series. So um, I guess just what do you make? I want to start there before we really get into, because I think, there's some problematic issues with this, but I also think it's pretty awesome. And so I don't, I would love to hear from you first. What do you make of that? What do you make of, of Snow White being the boss? And just in general, how does Willingham do with his depiction of the power of women? It's funny because when I first read the series, I it, it didn't in any way strike me as, um, you know, oh, not, uh, not a good depiction, but I was also a teenager. So reading rereading it again before this show now there are things that I look at and I'm like "Ooh, that didn't exactly age very well or that you know it, it's not um it's not really in line with where I am right now but it, you know as a kid it was like but great Snow White's you know wearing a suit and directing armies this is awesome but um I, I think as far as her role I liked the role right off the bat. I mean, you can tell that there, there's no mystery about who's really in charge. I mean, from the, I think page one or two, they tell you right away, you know, he, you can go talk to King Cole, but the, he like, doesn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's going to come right back down to me, which I, yeah. I love that response. That's just hilarious. But I, I think what struck me the most rereading it is how free it, it's still very the the female characters are empowered in a sense um 
you know, with Snow White, with Cinderella, but it, there's still this kind of overarching femininity to it as far as what they do, what their role is, how people react to them. Because, uh, you know, on one hand, and I, I do like the, um, you know, the way, sort of, the way Bigby and Snow White develop, but it, it also read as weird to me that he's openly hitting on his boss and asking her to a dance at the end of the first volume. I mean, that's a little like, okay, that's that's weird. That's not, not exactly the way you would expect someone to react to, um, you know, a, a all-powerful director, essentially, of Fable Town. But she calls she calls him on it though. She calls him on it yeah, and calls him out on true. it. That, that is so very that, true. So for her at least, she is saying, "Hey, this is this is not right. What what the heck are you doing?" You know. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's. I don't have a lot of problems with Snow White, kind of for that exact reason that there she's aware of the BS, but she calls people on it. You know, she's kind of more um, proactive in making sure people don't think like even with Prince Charming when he sits down and is trying Ugh. to swindle her out of money. He, she's like, I, you know, you're going to pick up the check and have a nice day. Like it's, <laughs> she, she's very immediate. But then, you know, I, I would look at, um, you know, someone like Briar Rose who gets swindled by Prince Charming pretty immediately, almost as soon as we meet her. Um, you know, her, her role, at least early on, it's very much that, that classic imagery of the damsel who is asleep and just... Oh. Yeah, her power <laughs> is sleeping. I mean, I get it. She's Sleeping Beauty, but it's also like, so it's a cool way that they use her power to manipulate the building, but it is also like, you're literally going to be asleep and your power is being a vulnerable, you know, woman. That's the only thing that you have going for you. Yeah. It's like she should have been in the Legion of Substitute Superheroes. <laughs> right. That kind of power. <laughs> right. That's right. See, I, I wouldn't mind the superpower, but it's a lame power in a way. Like it's, I mean, I would love it if cool stuff happened when I slept, but I also sleep too much to have the exact abilities she has because the, <laughs> the Philadelphia wouldn't run anymore. But, <laughs> but um, and, and even when we meet Cinderella, um, at least in in the the trades and not in her spinoff, one of the first things we see her do is seduce Ichabod Crane, which is kind of like, okay, I mean, she's cool. She's she's you know badass and that's awesome but uh you know it's it, so the way they use the the female characters it subverts that kind of classic narrative where they're just damsels or just there for you know the looks and the appeal and they're kind of pawn pieces but at the same time I, I kind of I don't know reading it again there are moments where I'm like all right well maybe we didn't have to show so much butt in this scene or maybe you know we didn't need so many men watching this woman sleep but it they they do a good job of subverting the original stories though because i mean it's it's not like the grimm's fairy tales or, or hans christian anderson's fairy tales are you know necessarily the most woke thing in the world so it, to me this this is a good reflection of where we were in 2002 and even if it doesn't necessarily play great in 2021 it's still a very, very well-written and well-depicted version of these stories. I think that's totally fair. And so Matt, you and I both have daughters. So yes. what, what do you, how do, what do you take from it? I agree with everything. I love Kelly's, Kelly's depiction of that. Um, you know, and as a father, I have four, you have two daughters, yep. you know, what, yep. what do you, were there stuff going through at this time as a father where you're like, yeesh, I wouldn't want to see, like, you know, was there any of that where you thought, because it's easy to just say, well, he's flipping it. He's, 
He's also making a commentary on the way, like what Kelly just said, the Hans Schuster Anderson and the Grimm's Brothers wrote women. He's he's leaning into that while he's also commenting on it because there's some gross stuff that's happening. But it's, you know, so how did you just feel like as a dad, as a as a woke person yourself with an art history degree, how did you look at the, these depictions of women? You've looked at depictions of women in art throughout all time. Yeah. So how do you, how yeah, do you see I, that goes? I, I really... At the, the first time I read it, you know, I, I really loved uh, Snow White because she did come off to me as a powerful, uh, a strong, independent woman who was, I felt, really, in the outset, the main character of the series. Uh, and, of course, it's, it's really an ensemble book. But in that first volume, you know, it's, she, to me, is, is, is the main character. Um, I, 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 have, I think... Uh, Rereading it, I was surprised at how quickly, and I'm not trying to spoil anything, how quickly things with Bigby and her happened, if you know what I mean. It's in the third volume, and I, I've forgotten that that's exactly what happened. It, um, if, you, if you know what I mean without spoiling it, because you don't want to spoil that happening because it's such a shock. But at the same time, it's, it's not a normal way to come together as a couple. And uh, it really it bothered me that that's how it happened because in a sense they're both powerless there, but it, I think it plays, uh, it, you know, men and women being who they are and how things work. It's, they're a little more vulnerable in that sense. Uh, maybe that's a stereotype. I don't know, but I, I feel like that's, that's true. And so that, that bothered me um, rereading it, that it happened, that it happened that way. Cause I didn't recall it happening that way. Because it had been, you know, obviously quite a long while since I'd read volume three uh, of, of Fables. And there was something else that I made a note of that, that to bring up, I'm going to pull it up here real quick. Uh, volume three, page 100. I will pull it out because I've got it in front of me. I set up a few of them here. So it's, uh, I, I might not be able to find it at 100. Boom. That's individually okay. Never mind. Um, it's like Boy Blue and a couple of the male characters talking about the attractiveness of Snow White and someone saying, "I'd sell my soul for a night with her." And and that just it's just like, no, Boy Blue, I liked you coming into this. Now why are you saying something so you know traditionally creepy like that? And I and I, I literally my note is. How do we feel about that? <laughs> I mean, That's I, a line I, that Jack yeah. should have said. I don't. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it felt like, and I wonder because that is something like the Jack and the Beanstalk character is a shyster and an asshole in this whole series. And Blue is a pretty decent fella. Most of the, I mean, we learned that he's super badass, and I honestly, <laughs> his adventures are amazing, and the stuff that he does is spectacular. But I always wonder. Was that just an oops? Did did Todd Klein, who I think he'd lettered the entire series, which is insane, wow. because he's writing in other languages and other fonts. And normally, you know, the argument is if the letterer is doing a good job, you don't notice. He's amazing. Todd, Todd Klein, bow to you. I'm assuming he won Eisner's for this too. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if that was a mistake. Was that supposed to be, or or did Willingham draw the wrong person? Because I'm with you. That doesn't. That did not oh. feel great. I just. I'm not yeah. trying to make an excuse, yeah. but it doesn't fit his personality. You know what? It, it feels like one of those traditional, uh, you know, locker room comments that 
that that guys make and maybe it's trying to if you're going to try to defend it and it's one of those things that you know I mean you're going to notice women as guys and you're going to think they're attractive or whatever and guys talk about attractive women that that happens but do they say things that are rude like that does everybody some people do but you know they yeah. say it like that i hope not i wouldn't but think boy blue would i wouldn't i no. wouldn't either i wouldn't either so I, I don't know it just it's like it's one of those oops moments like you say where you know the it's reflecting maybe you said 2000 whatever and before i mean guess how old is william william's older than me right he's got to be older than me because he was writing comics when i was in teenager uh, uh elementals yeah. from kamika yeah born you know, in 56 i remember i remember him from then so he's quite a bit older so his yeah. take on things while he's giving us a, a good representation of a lot of things he might have some other things that aren't going to jump out at him as being <sighs> troublesome which yeah. i found this time with those two things in particular and i'm sure there are more if i were to uh analyze it a little bit more i didn't reread everything for for this I read no me neither yeah three i read the first three and a half volumes so i get a start and just remember get my my brain going on where things are with with things so yeah so yeah I, that's kind of how i am with it with yeah. that particular it, it, it's one of those things i think maybe that maybe once he gets going he find a, finds the right words and the right depictions as we get going it's still early on i think even neil gaiman said about sandman in the beginning it's not really sandman in the beginning it doesn't become sandman or what we think of as sandman until a little bit later on because it's still developing and that might be kind of what we're dealing with here maybe he hasn't quite realized that blue wouldn't say that we we don't think he would say that because we've read the whole thing and going back or reading it it's like oh it's a head scratcher but maybe if William had to do it over again, he wouldn't have him say that if he'd go back in time and fix it. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just guessing. I'm talking. No, I think that's fair. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, I think it's important too, then that's the flip side of it is that not only do we have these male represent or these female representations, we have these male representations. And I think that's a great, that's a great conversation. That's a great way to transition because we have all of these stereotypical things and everything that you guys have said. And now we've got these stereotypical male characters. And what you're saying is like, I think, I think maybe that's it. You know, we're all writers. We all go back. I mean, the, the novel that I'm pitching right now, the, one of the main characters when, and hit the first draft, he was a total dick. And by the time it was over, I've made, I like went back and I scrubbed all of that. Cause I didn't, there's awful characters. There's always a villain. Right. But I like made him much like more likable and much more, um, uh, sympathetic. It, I, his alcoholism isn't as doesn't make him a mean asshole like it did in the first draft. And so maybe that's it. Maybe it just was like he realized. I don't know. But but again. But I think we have to. If we're going to do one. We have to do the other. So what do you make, Kel, as as the speaking for all women? Obviously, because that's how <laughs> you are all a monolith. And whatever Kelly Gaines says is how all women feel about this. No, <laughs> you are every woman. Every you. I'm honored, guys. I am. <laughs> okay, so what do you make of the representation of the male characters? Um, do you think they're given more depth and differentiation? Do you think that too many of the female characters are just slight variations of themselves with different hair colors? 
as opposed to the way that the men are? Or do you think that, um, you know, there is this still kind of like, you know, she man, woman hater thing or he man, woman hater thing going on throughout the series. What do you think? See, I, I, I think actually the male characters bothered me a little bit more than the female characters even, which, and I'm glad you brought up the, you know, looking like each other with different hair color things, because I, I did notice that, especially as I, as I've been rereading it, I'm like, huh, that's, you know, I guess I, I never really thought about the fact before that that well, why does every is every woman in this book an, an old hag or a little girl or a beautiful princess but I mean it's I as far as the 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 uh, personalities of the male characters I was annoyed by that line by boy blue because it's like you know I like you you're supposed to be the nice guy and her like very you know he seems like such a loyal and and friendly and caring um assistant to Snow White so it's kind of jarring when you hear that and um it's, it, it struck me more as a line that's kind of a, you know, just something someone writes without thinking it through at all. Because I, I mean, if we think back to 2002, we're talking, you know, this is the era of movies like, you know, American Pie and, and Euro Trip and kind of these very, it's sort of that same way that men talk about women, the same way that women are depicted. Um, and it just, it, it reads poorly and there, there was almost a sense of deja vu with most of the male characters because for the most part in even just the first couple of volumes, they all make some kind of a locker room comment somewhere or another, or, you know, there's Prince Charming being, you know, himself, but- <laughs> That's it, we, he, let's just pause there for a minute because that is the most brilliant thing that they, he just acknowledges it's the same guy in all the stories. That it's like I we thought always, that was brilliant. We always think of like oh, Prince Charming in Snow White story is different than a Prince Charming in Red Riding Hood story or in uh, um, Briar Rose's story, which is different than Sid Rose. Like, no, it's just the same guy. And he's guy a and he's an asshole. <laughs> oh my God. I love, I, I thought that was a nice commentary that he's just a giant douche. I, I, that was one of the things in the first volume that not only made me laugh, but that I thought was brilliant. Just like he said, I was like, this is going to be clever. This is just going to be a good read. This is there's something clever, really clever about this series, and I, I still think that is brilliant. But actually, what happens with Prince Charming later is even more interesting. How he develops throughout the series, it it it, it gives a, a different side of the character, even though he's still uh, the traditional cad and an asshole when it comes to how he treats women. He actually has some other aspects of his character that are good for different things in the world even if it's not being a husband, you know what I mean? It's clearly not it being a, a husband or yeah. a partner <laughs> yeah. or anything. Yeah. What I think, so, it was yeah. a great balance, you know, to, to the character that made him feel fleshed out and real, even if you despise him as a, you know, the way he treats women, he, there's something you can see in him that he has positive attributes for. I don't know. I thought it was just, it's just really well done to me. And that's the kind of thing. So the surprises that you get throughout the series that you don't want to spoil too much of because you got to learn experience those on your own, but go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 he not grows on me, but there, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. There is a point where I'm like, okay, I don't hate him as much as I did, you know, four issues ago. <laughs> there's, he there's has a an arc. I, well, switch. He definitely makes him the worst of the worst. And I almost wonder if, is, is Prince Charming being the worst of the worst supposed to then allow us to think about Jack isn't as bad and the stuff that Bigby does is endearing instead of creepy. And 
like uh, flies. Well, flies story is really tragic, but like, you don't know that at first. And he's just another one of those, like you said, cads, Matt, where he's just another one of these guys. So, so I almost wonder, I don't, I'm with you, Matt. I think he has an interesting arc, but I've also agreed with you, Kelly, that I still hate him at the end. I mean, you can grow, but when you go from being, you know, a toddler to a six-year-old over the course of 13 years, it's not great. It's better. At least you're not as bad. <laughs> well, well, I think when, when you consider how his story ends, it thinking of him as a jerk at the beginning makes it a little bit easier to take when it finally uh, wraps up, if you know what I mean, without giving away everything. Yeah. And I think, I don't want to know if that's part of what he had in mind. I was wondering the whole time rereading this, how much had he planned out? Did he have an idea? Oh, it's by the end of this, this character is going to end up here. This, or, or did he have a certain distance planned out? And then as the thing was popular and winning Eisner awards and just kept going was he like, oh, I got to keep going. I got to figure out what's going to happen next now, you know, and then you have to plan out even further down the road that I haven't heard anything about. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good, that's a good question. And as a host, I should have found out. Sorry. <laughs> that was your job, Tony. That Come was on. My job. I have one job. All right. Sorry. Set up the zoom and do that. So anyway, Kel, sorry. I didn't mean to, I just wanted to jump in. No, no, when you brought up Prince Charming, I thought he was such a, he's the embodiment of that so what do you think do you think he's made to be so awful so that maybe everybody else feels better because you said in general you're not super fan of the male characters the way that they're depicted it's see with him i'm not sure i i've read him more as just being a, a kind of blatant subversion of you know so prince charming is the the ultimate prince so here's how we can make him just the ultimate uh i don't i don't want to use too bad of a word but it, the the ultimate douchebag, <laughs> <laughs> king and, of the douchebags. Exactly. Yes, prince, and prince they, they as it were. Yeah. Prince douchebag. I mean, he's, yeah, he's you know douchebag charming or, or mm -hmm. prince either way. But uh, with his, so I I didn't see him more as a way for us to look at the other male characters. It just it, it kind of just came off to me as you know maybe the I I don't know how to put because the story is so well written. I don't want to think that anything wasn't deliberate, but I do think in a sense, I mean, especially as, you know, looking back at, all right, so we're thinking early 2000s, how much of the, you know, behavior that we can clearly say, you know, that's, that's toxic and that's not good. How many people were actually aware of that at the time enough for him to have thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't have Boy, Boy Blue say this little one-off here, or maybe, and I mean, for me, that was part of, because Bigby was one of my favorite favorite characters and I, I wouldn't say that he stops being that but it I was a little disappointed when at the end of you know volume one it's like he he did all of this so he could trick her to going and well, not all of this but to trigger to go to a dance with him to me it was kind of like I I would respect him more as a character if that wasn't if that wasn't a, a part of it right then so you were saying that um you lost some respect for him at the end of volume one. What, what would you have preferred that they had done with him there? I mean, I, I feel like they could have built up the romance a little bit more because the, the, it just strikes me as a little bit unbelievable. Cause we, you know, so we find out that he has this crush on her and tricked her into going into a dance, yada, yada. She puts him in his place and that's fine. But I, I don't know, to me, it just kind of read as, you know, maybe we could have had that, delayed a little bit or maybe that could have just been I don't know done more tactfully where Bigby to me seems like you know he is one of the truly 
reformed characters. So it just, I, I see him as someone who would have been a little bit more honest and upfront. And if he does love Snow White that much, have, you know, have the respect for her to just come by it honestly then, you know, it's, so it, it's, it just, that moment. And of course the, you know, the kind of weirdness you guys mentioned that happens down the line with them. It gave me pause, but it, it's weird that it didn't strike me as so much that the character is flawed as just the, the writer didn't really think this through. Um, and and not all of the male characters do that, eh, but they do though, is, is kind of the thing. We get, you know, a weird line from Pinocchio. We get a weird line from, uh, plenty from Jack. Uh, oh. it, it just kind of... Pinocchio is creepy was, AF. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some serious problems. And I mean, even with, um, you know, when Sleeping Beauty is asleep and they're, you know, they tell her, all right, so Prince Charming will kiss you and wake you up. Prince Charming's not who kisses her and nobody mentions that to her. It, it just reads a little strangely where it's like, okay, so, you know, Flies had this, this crush on her. So it's, it's okay for him, but is it okay for her? And it's kind of, I, I don't know. I just, I read it more as these things, not so much being deliberate as just maybe not thought through the way a writer would think it through today. Yeah, I, think, I agree. Go ahead. Sorry, Matt. Go. I think a lot of what happens sometimes is he's trying to flip the expectations. So he goes in opposite directions. And when you do that, you can sometimes not think through you think you're doing it for this reason but in actuality it's coming off on a second reading 20 years later very differently yeah you know and i think that might be what we're experiencing and uh something about bigby that i i the, what you're talking about with you know tricking snow white to go to the dance i kind of read that differently and maybe that's just because of who i am and uh and my own experiences with with uh with 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 women growing up is I found that as a as a sign of uh, showing his vulnerability that he didn't have the confidence and he was he was afraid he would have been afraid to say anything directly and the only way he felt like he could get that time with her was to try to be a little under the you know disguise it as part of the plan but hey now I get to go to the dance with Snow White woohoo yeah. because you know if, if you're if you're insecure and vulnerable with uh, your relationships with women. And of course, I'm sure Bigby has in the past. He doesn't have real good relationships with women previously that we can imagine. From the whole favorites, eating you know? of people's grandmas yeah. and stuff. Is yeah, a problem. yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's, and he's reformed, but he probably hasn't had any real positive experiences uh, that we know of at the time. So that, that's how more I took that. Is it, is it, uh, is it your traditional heroic way to do things? No, but I think the whole, part of the whole thing about the series is, is is like i said changing expectations you have the big bad wolf is now the sheriff you have uh prince charming is the exact opposite of the heroic uh handsome true love prince charming he's the exact opposite of that now uh and i think that's that's part of what we're what the brilliant part about the stories are but then when you develop them into sort of uh, fully fleshed out characters some of those things read differently later on but as you're going through it the first time I think I think it works I think it's upon a second reading and upon more reflection that you see those those things pop up yeah I think that's true I think that's totally true and I think just to be mindful of time because this is what happens when we start talking we're like oh we're no 
three hours later, it's that SpongeBob thing. So um, I do want to talk though about, and this ties in with Rose, Snow White's power, Bigby's power. The, and this is a very Neil Gaiman-y thing. And obviously he and Bill Willingham aren't the first people who thought of it, but this idea that your power comes from the belief in you and that the more that the Mundies believe in you, the more bulletproof you literally are. And so the story begins, and this isn't giving too much away, is that they think Rose Red is dead. And, and if you don't know who Rose Red is, you're not, you're in good company. Because <laughs> in the original story, Snow White had a sister, Red. And, and I almost wonder if the term redheaded stepchild literally comes from her <laughs> because she is 100% totally forgotten and dismissed in the story in popular culture. And so we all know the Disneyfied version of Snow White. We know the plays that we were all in and kids. Snow White's the heroine. The, the dwarves are there. The Prince Charming is there, the evil stepmother. But she's got a sister that we've totally overlooked. So anyway, so she doesn't have as much power. So the fact that she could have been killed is real because she hangs out with the Mundies. She looks like that. Again, like you said, Kelly, what you said was genius. They're either hags, little girls, or princesses. Like they're all either bombshells, little girls, or hags. And I think that's insane. That's so astute. And so we have a redheaded bombshell who is Rose Red, um, who's like hipster hanging out. You know, like she may have invented hipsterism because she's in Brooklyn. She's hanging out, right? I mean, I feel like, is it, did Rose Red invent hipsterism? Is that what we're saying? But anyway, so she's dead. They think she's been killed. And it's believable because she's been forgotten by the Mondays, by us. So what do you make of that, con that conversation about the strength of the power of their character as fables relies solely on the way that we love them, think about them, know about them, which again comes up later with Jack and Jack's whole side story of becoming a movie producer and making everybody love him, which is funny because I'm like, well, that didn't actually work because not everybody knows his story. But of course, there was a Jack and the Beanstalk movie not that long ago. So anyway, what do you guys make of that idea? And as just as writers and as studies and as academics, is that true? Do we do we there's this commentary, I think, on the canon, you know, like this is a good writer because we've said it's a good writer. And this person is important. This artist is important because we've said this artist is important as opposed to, well, there was this nobody artist who was painting, you know, also, but you only know who Peter Bruegel is. So all the other Dutch artists doesn't matter. So is that, I, I don't know, I, that's how I read it. But I was just, I'm fascinated by that concept of your power comes from your popularity, um, which of course we know is true in middle school, but is that does it also mean it's just true in life. So I don't, whoever wants to go first, I will shut up. I, I think it's true uh, because that's kind of, uh, how the world works with things it doesn't matter if it's good or bad it's if it's popular and i guess i think mostly because of music because i'm a super music nerd and usually don't listen to anything that's remotely popular or that has ever been popular my stuff is always on the side that i've never heard of that yes yeah, because it's good that's why you've never heard of it you know and I, I take a little bit of a snobby attitude about it. So I, I'm definitely a music snob and I, I, I fully admit that and I'll, I'll own that to the day I die, but that's just who I am. Um, but, but I think the idea that, that the Monday belief in the fables is, is a brilliant idea for the series and he uses it effectively a few different times. Um, and of course we can't really spoil anything with that because it's, there are some moments that are just like, holy shit, that's like the walking dead kind of stuff going on. <laughs> and it's like, that's awesome. That's great. Um, 
But uh, one thing about Rose Red, because I am a nerd in all facets of my life, I had to go find where Red, Rose Red's story was uh, originally. So I found the Snow White story with Rose Red. And it's actually a separate fairy tale from the other Snow White story that we know of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Those are two separate characters originally. Snow, two separate Snow Whites, they is merged into one character. And I thought that was brilliant because it gives the whole... Uh, sisterly relationship which i thought was another uh, relationship thing that was uh, interesting to comment on siblings uh, i don't have i'm the only child i don't have any siblings but my my wife has a brother and a sister and most people have have some uh some sibling and there's either they either get along great there's a rivalry or there's you know outright hatred and you can't stand one another uh and rose and snow sort of go through the whole gamut and i'm a sucker for uh uh, reconciliation and redemption stories so you know the whole time i'm reading this i'm going oh i hope they make up in their friends by the end you know i really i like i really hope they get to be friends by the end and the whole so every time they are together to me that's like some of the best scenes and one of the reasons why i like rose is because i just want them to you know i like both of them that's the thing i like snow and i like rose i just hate seeing them you know what do you say cal oh boy um yeah, I so I as a kid, one of the first things I ever read was a, an old book of fairy tales that was published in like the 1950s. Um, and from there, I just kind of became obsessed with fairy tales. So I've collected tons and tons of copies of these stories from I think my oldest copy is from, I want to say early like 1918 or something. Um, and so I had been familiar with Rose Red, but I guess as a kid, you, you kind of want to assume everything's a crossover. So I was just like, oh, this is just like another Snow White story. This is like, you know, the, the prequel or whatever. But, <laughs> you nice. know, and, and it's, it's, a good, it's a good story and it uses some of the same elements. And in um, Snow White, obviously there's the seven dwarves. There is one dwarf in uh, Snow White and Rose Red. Um, and there was something else. There was another element that was the same, but it, the other strange thing about reading those old books is you'll notice there are 40 jacks and there are, you know, 40 old witches in the woods. So it's, I think Fables did a really good job of kind of combining those together. But I, yeah, I mean, I, I felt for Rose Red as far as her saying, you know, if I was shot in the head, I would be dead right now because it's like, oof, that is, it, it's one of the, I, I think it's a well-written dynamic because it's very true to life for you know families and 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 siblings I think because it's a predicament that they're in where they have this kind of friction and Rose has this resentment towards Snow White but it's also something that Snow White can't really she can't really help that she is the more popular sister so it's kind of a, I like that moment where they're aware of where they stand with each other and Rose Red is like well you get to live and I want to do my own thing I, I think that reads probably is one of the most realistic interactions I've seen. Um, and, and as far as the belief gives them power, um, it, I, I do like that idea. I, I think it makes sense. Um, I think it's a good way of tying in the fact that these are you know, classic stories and they seem to be aware that they're classic stories and, and how that functions. And, and it kind of you know, gives them that hierarchy within their own, um, you know, within their community. Um, I, yeah, I don't see how fables would have worked without it. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it would have either. I think what I like is that, that they don't even always know who they are. 
and when later on, and again, because we're, I think we're doing a great job of not spoiling anything, but there's some children, there's some fables who are children that show up later and they don't understand this dynamic that you're describing. They don't understand their own existence, nor do they understand who their parentage, like their, their lineage are. Like at one point, one of them says, I thought grandpa was, Snow- was Santa Claus. And so, and that's, of course, that's, that's addressed way later in the series, but it's just like, I think that's so brilliant because again, we, we do that like as Mondays. Um, so it was cool to see a fable, not understand because it's a new fable, which I thought was also interesting. There's not a ton of new fables in here and um, because how could there be? So there's these new fables and they don't understand. So they have this like really um, amazing perspective that the rest of us can't have because we all have our own versions of what the fables were. So I think it's really interesting, Cal, that you collected them and and Matt, you went and looked them up because we all see the stories through a particular lens. Like, so Mowgli is a good example. Most people haven't read the Jungle Book. Most people didn't read Ricky Tiki Tavi. They don't realize that's actually in the same universe. Like a lot of people recognize um, those stories from the Disneyfied versions or the cartoon versions or whatever. But the Jungle Book, I mean, that's stuff, that's pretty gruesome stuff. And I think the way that Mowgli is portrayed in this is my, is my favorite portrayal of a person of color for two reasons. Number one, they do a bad job in general. And that's my commentary <laughs> on the fact this was post 9-11. And so when the Middle Eastern fables show up, they're villains or they're, they're power hungry assholes. And so it's like, eesh, that's a bad look a little bit. But also just this idea of what the character does, the things that you think the character will do. And so if you're watching Mowgli like breaking necks and snapping legs and doing the stuff being, you know, like he's at his most powerful. As soon as he drops himself in the jungle, he like strips. And then he starts kicking ass, like making Mowgli <laughs> kicking wool fast. And I appreciated that because that's the Mowgli I know from the book, but the jungle book Mowgli is like bare necessities. You know what I mean? So, so I just think that's a really fascinating look too at what it, it like you said, Kelly. It's, it's not Snow White's fault that she's the most popular. It's Walt Disney's fault that she's the most popular. Yeah. <laughs> Something that popped into my head uh, when you were talking, Kelly, uh, and it relates back to what you said early, uh, Tony, about a commentary. And I don't wonder if some of the ideas about belief. Uh, in one fable or another uh, can be looked at as commentary on the the value of human life. And uh, maybe we, we read it and we like Rose and we don't want her to die. Uh, and we don't, we understand that we value her more than maybe the mundane world at large. And that's kind of how we view human life sometimes as a, as a as a people you know if you know the person personally you tend to value them more than if you uh, uh depersonalize them by somebody in another country far off that you don't really know oh they're just somebody eh, you know oh it's just some fable we've never heard of you know until now now they're dead now we've heard of them you know what i mean and i wonder i don't know if there's a commentary there but as you were speaking kelly um what you were saying uh it that's what I got out of what you were saying. So I don't know if that's something that's going on or not, but I, I thought I should bring it up. It seemed at least interesting, if nothing, if not, uh, <laughs> if yeah. not right. <laughs> I, I think you're definitely right there. Cause there is, um, in, I think it's the, in volume one, when they, uh, they do that speech for the remembrance day, um, okay. 
you know, they, they say, well, it was those lands over there. And we thought that's fine. Those aren't our lands. And then it was those lands over there. And we were still like, that's fine. That's not our land. Oh, yeah, and then yeah, eventually yeah, yeah. it's your lands. And then they're like, well, mm. crap. Now, now, now it matters. It's <laughs> exactly. Now that, so yeah. Yeah. You, you, that's definitely, definitely a theme that, that you hit on. Cause there is a, I mean, there's no way that's not deliberate. And that's kind of the predicament they find themselves in because mm. all of these different stories and different characters have some really tough history. But at the end of the day, it's all of their inability to, to act when something is being done to a different place that puts them in the situation they're in. Right, right. Yeah, and there's it's really stark to me that it's all the, the Eastern European, Northern European fables that have survived and all of the white fables and all of the, and again, there's, there's a reason, right? That they're alive and well in New York because that's the Western fables are the ones that we know. And that's why I bring up Mowgli because Kipling is a white guy writing about India. Um, and so it's made it over. Whereas some of the other fables, and, and you know, that's like more modern day. I mean, it's not like Kipling wrote that hundreds of years ago. I mean, you know, that's, that's relatively in the history of the world, Jungle Book is pretty modern. Right, it's compared to Pinocchio and what the Grimm's brothers were doing and what Hans Christian Andersen doing. So I think you're absolutely right what you both are saying, and like you're saying, Kel, like it's like, well, when it was over there, we didn't do anything. And ah, those were those brown people, or those were those Asian people who didn't look anything like us, and those were those. And now it's like, oh shit! And so, so it is. T- it is telling that it, the ones that survive, the ones that we focus on, are all of the white ones. But it's also set up per, so you can again not forgiving its casual racism because i do think Mowgli's a hero in this and i think he's handled very well he's one of my favorite late ads later in the the stuff that he goes through at the end of the first half to um to go find big b to free his friend to free bagheera and i think that's lovely um and that's important to you know their relationship is important and so i love that Mowgli has such agency and is such a badass and i really do like him um, he's the only one, but I do think it's also because that's part of the comment too, is like, well, you Westerners, this is a story written for American audiences and British audiences. So we're giving you the fables that you recognize, but like you guys both said, don't forget the world has fables. I mean, you can argue historically Cinderella is actually a Chinese fable first. Like some of the original writings of Cinderella are, are Chinese and that have been, which you, there was the magic fish instead of the fairy godmother. I think those are dated pre what we think of as Cinderella. Um, but of course, the Cinderella in here is the blonde bombshell Cinderella. So something not... Marco Polo probably brought back from his <laughs> travels. Wouldn't you think that's true? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I, was, I really liked all the other stuff as the series goes on, how he keeps adding different fables and he starts pulling in these other fables that as european white people we've never heard and he yeah brings them in i got that thought that was a brilliant move eventually yeah, maybe. to get them in i mean you know and i have to say Mowgli has the best t-shirt in the whole book if you don't <laughs> remember if you don't remember Mowgli's wearing a transatlantic t-shirt yes transatlantic yeah. is one of my favorite bands is that right when that's I, amazing when, yeah when i saw that in that pic when i first read it i threw the book down and spun around and said holy shit transatlantic was that mark buckingham who drew it or was that bill willingham who wrote it and said mark draw a transatlantic t-shirt it was like this i was there's another musical thing i'll talk about later that i noticed yeah no i think that's awesome yeah no i i just i just really and that's interesting too is what what is considered a fable like because you're right you know as the story goes on and they bring in new ones not only ones that that we didn't have never heard of because they're from other cultures, they're non-Western fables, but also like 
is, and that's my question to you guys, is should Bogley be here? I mean, are, what does it take? Like at some point in time, are Wesley and Buttercup here? Are they a fairy tale? Is is that too, like, oh. can, can they exist? Can Neil Gaiman's, is Tristan here? Because that's, I mean, Stardust is, is one of my favorite fairy tales of all time. I love Stardust. I love the book. I thought the movie version was probably slightly better just because De Niro's performance was out of sight, amazing. And Michelle Pfeiffer was the queen that she deserved to be. But, um, you know, Charlie Cox is great, whatever. So, so are they eventually going to end up in Fabletown, even though they're new fables? Like, so, so what is the, what is the, what does it take to be a new fable? And it does it go back to just enough people love you. Or can I just sit here in my notebook and be like, I'm going to write a new fairy tale. And now that will poof into existence somewhere. What do you think they're saying about that? Just out of curiosity. Huh. I'm not sure. I mean, that is, um, that, that is a very good point. Cause I, I think one of the most recent, um, or what, one of the most recent ones I picked out is the fact that uh, Oz and, you know, that whole land of Oz comes into, into play here. What was appropriate and important, um, you know, a, as far as who counted as American, he specifically hated Native Americans. Um, and, and kind of, you can pick up glimpses of that in the Oz stories of, you know, as a whole, if you read the whole series, because um, I grew up loving that series and my mom loved that series. But it, it's interesting though, because almost all of the other stories are from Europe or, or from, you know, some historical period. And, and this seems to be the one, you know, really rooted American, uh, I, you know, universe that they picked. And it's, it's interesting that it's his. Yeah, well, and what do you make of that? I mean, there's a lot of subversive stuff. Obviously, the whole thing about the gold standard, which is in there and the political commentary and, you know, yeah. I don't know. That is, I mean, is, is that the only, is that what is what Willingham is saying is that's really the only American fairy tale that's worth telling is Oz? Like, is that our American mythology? Because we've got the British people here and we've got the old North so, Norse stuff. Am I misremembering? I thought we had Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox in there at some point. Oh. You know what? I think you're right. right. They do show up. Yeah. 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 That's a good I, point. Yeah. I don't know. I, and I'm thinking right now, what about uh, the railroad guy? Does he not show up at some point? Yeah. John, Henry. Not, yeah John, John Henry. Henry. Yeah. Yeah. John Henry. Right. He, yeah. I don't remember if he's in this. I hope yeah. he is, though, because it's sort of looking at it. it if he was in this, I, I would feel a little bit better about what it seems to be saying as a whole. Because it, I mean, and it's interesting to me that, you know, they're in. The United States, but we don't see any real Native American folklore showing up, which I, there's a ton of it. And it, it is very That's interesting true. folklore. That's true. But I, yeah, I yeah. didn't really see even that many hints to it, if any, that I can recall. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of volumes and I haven't, like I haven't read all, I mean, it's been it's ended and I haven't gone back and reread the whole thing. And I've never reread the whole, the whole thing. But I, I, I'm just picking up bits and pieces. But yeah, you'd think there'd be something yeah. Native American with all the, yeah. the stuff that exists. Well, and, and that's the, and so to me, that's part of what, you know, we all love this book series. None of us are shitting on it and telling everybody not to read it. But it is, it's <laughs> worth, it's worth pointing out is that there are problems with it. And I think that's what you can say is I can love this for what it is, but also acknowledge it can't, and, and I also think nothing can be everything to everyone, right? Because that's impossible. And so 
we also don't know, you know, what they knew. You know, what did Bill know and how much research did he do? How much of this is just stuff from his childhood? Like you, Kelly, maybe he just read a lot of this stuff. And so this is just what he remembers. And then he sticks yeah. this in. He's like, wouldn't it be cool if Bigby killed Nazis? Because anybody wants to punch a Nazi. <laughs> right? Everybody loves that. So let's just do that. And you'll root for Bigby. And that really humanizes Bigby, that story, right? In a totally new way. And you're like, oh, man, he's awesome. So, you know, we, we can't say it's simply because he ignored them. But we have to acknowledge that he does. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I, I would say through my first read, um, I was more excited about the fact that he got so many references to so many stories that I liked that I wasn't really focused on what wasn't there. I, I would say that I didn't go back and start saying, "Well, all right, that's a little weird." Probably until this most recent reread. I, but I think that's what makes it worth doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. I was the same way. I just was every time something new came in, it was just like, oh, that's so cool. He got that. He worked that. Oh, that's so clever. And he would do it in clever ways, you know, to be a reference or something. And then, oh, that's that. It's just really clever stuff. So same, same experience. Just so excited to see so many things referenced. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't do it all. And that's the thing, no matter what it is. But I do think you're right. The fact that it is set in America on Manhattan Island, which was originally owned by Native Americans. At no point are you like, hey, um, guess what? We probably should bring that up. And I think that's that's a flaw in the story. Um, it doesn't take away from the, what he does well, though. It's just like you have to make the argument of, you know, this person does something awful. You know, like we're on my other show, we're doing, we're covering the Buffy show and we're acknowledging Joss Whedon's kind of a dick, but the show is still really good and the performances are good. And, and there's a lot of strong women who are writing that show. And there's a lot of women whose lives were changed because of Buffy, who were able, like once Willow comes out, they were, they saw that as it's okay to be powerful. It's okay to be out. And, you know, so there's lots of positive things that you can take from things that, that have, that aren't perfect. And I'm not, comparing Bill Willingham to Joss Whedon at all. I, Bill, I've never heard a bad word about Bill Willingham. I mean, he's not Warren Ellis. You know what I mean? It's like, he's not, uh, you know, uh, Scott uh, Lobdell. He's not that guy. So we're, <laughs> oh, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, so it just, it's just right. I just think it's, um, it is interesting. And again, for me, the, the thing, the race thing that, that and, and it could be too, you've only got so many hours in the day to tell a story. And I almost wonder, and again, bad research on my part, I kind of always felt like it was supposed to be 75 issues. And then, like you said, it started winning awards. Like, oh, we've got a million D, billion D stories to tell. Let's just keep adding them. Like he, I think he had an arc with the adversary, with the main group, the the way that he was going to broker peace. He makes that comparison to Israel in there, which I think is really fascinating. Again, in the post 9-11 world, you're making this conversation about the Middle East specifically. Um, so I think there's some political undertones there without it being so overt. That's always just been my guess is that there were 75 issues and then they're like, what do you say? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> You're making us money, Bill. This is great. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> Come on, let's win another 25 Eisners. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> That's, but you know what? I, in, in the, you know, the recent reading I did, the one thing I noticed, and at least uh, speaking for, you know, volumes one through four, um, not only kind of like they're obviously these are the European fairy tales and whatnot, but even in background characters with the Mundies, there were only that I noticed two um, two black characters, and one was the devil who Jack meets in the woods, 
And the other was a, a guy in a bar who was drawn in a, I just not drawn in a way that I liked, you know, on site. And it, so that to me, that was kind of, but again, it's, you know, we're talking about a, a huge series. I'm like, I, I just know that stood out to me as far as those initial books. Um, so yeah, I think the, the depictions are lacking, but you know, it's just, it's so, because this, again, is one of my favorite series, and it got me so deeply into comics, that it's, to me, I'm like, I don't think that's deliberate, per se, but, you know, it's just, it, it's hard to see, you know, at this point. Well, and, and we all know, as writers, all writers always tell you, write about what you know. There's a reason every Rainbow Rowell book takes place in Nebraska, because that's what she knows, right? I mean, you, you know, there's, Every Stephen King book takes place in Maine. How many of us have been to Maine? You know what I mean? Like a handful of people. But we all feel like we know Maine because of Stephen King. And, and uh, Paul and I were talking like, hey, maybe the Maine Tourism Board is like talking to the King family. Hey, guys, <laughs> can you stop? Because no one wants to come here because it sounds like it's an awful place. But again, in all of those books, because it's what you know, everybody's pretty white. Yeah, because that's what Maine looks like. So Bill Willingham writes what he knows. And, you know, and, and again, it doesn't necessarily make him, a I, again, it's not making him bad. It, it's a, it's a glaring um, omission or problem, and that's why it's worth having the conversation. Because, like you said, even about that comment that Boy Boy Blue makes, if Bill could do do a redo, would he be like, "Oh, I'm going to make Jack say that," or "I'm going to make Charming say that," or Bluebeard Bluebeard would totally say that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that you know that that Blue would, but he didn't have a sense of who they were yet, so. As we're talking about this topic, something has crept into my mind as both of you have been saying such intelligent things. Uh, I, I'm wondering if uh, we, we've missed something uh, with the farm. Uh, that second volume is called Animal Farm, so that automatically conjures up images of George Orwell's book. But I'm wondering if the whole thing is really not uh, supposed to be a, a paradigm for uh, racial segregation instead. Oh, 100%. But, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And is, is that maybe where we're what what we're talking about is being addressed in a different way, but it's not as obvious because it's not involving uh, color specifically, but rather something else. And I, I, I hadn't I'll be honest, I hadn't really thought about it. It just makes sense. You can't have the animals in the city because people are going to go, look, there's a talking pig. What's going on? But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. But but, but on, on a broader scope, when you read uh when you read it, you think about it, that seems to be what's, what's being going on there. I don't know. Discuss. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I can see that as, and, and it certainly is, you know, a, a kind of on the nose way of, of saying, you know, they have issues within this community with prejudice and with, you know, some fables have to go live out there and some, fa and it's the, there's definitely, you know, again, that hierarchy. And I guess to me, it just, it's one of those, those things where it's so if if he was conscious enough to address the issue of prejudice then I, I feel like maybe he would have been conscious enough to um you know to, to address some of some of the other issues we just brought up that it's you know you're kind of you're missing quite a few stories and yeah and it just I, it's a little it's a little bit jarring because I, I definitely at the point that I read this as a teenager wasn't looking for anything like that it was more of you know again these are my favorite fairy tales i'm so excited but yeah it's it does make me wonder though because if there's the 
kind of an absence of apart from Mowgli really you know good characters of color but then we have this whole side plot with the animal farm it, it kind of I, I don't know if that sort of cancels out in a way right right yeah well, and that's the other thing. Big B is a shape-shifting wolf who's a black wolf when he's a wolf. So why is he a white dude? Do you know what I mean? There's a, there's definitely, again, I, I feel like we're shitting on it. We need to spin it around to positive. Kel's, Kel's got to go in a minute, but it is interesting. Take like, away some of those Eisners. Yeah, yeah. No, you're a shape-shifting wolf that when you're a wolf, you're black. But when you're a man, you're white with black hair. So again, why? He didn't have to be. And it could be, I mean, here's the thing. The other day, Chris and Dave on their um, VHS Tricks Back show did Virtuosity, which is a, a, a techno thriller movie from like 95 or 96 or something with um, uh, Denzel Washington and, um, oh, I can't even think of his name. The Australian guy, it'll come to me. Russell Crowe. Russell and so Crow. Kelly Lynch is in the movie as the female lead. And in the original script, Denzel Washington's character and Kelly Lynch's character were going to have a romantic thing, but they had other people in mind. But when they ended up casting Denzel Washington, they cut that scene because they thought there's no way they're going to let us make this movie if Kelly Lynch and Denzel Washington kissed. And this is in like 95. So, so that's absurd. But so this is 2002. So again, it's not better. It's not okay. But that's also, we don't know what's happening. It's like, if Bill said, look, I'm going to make, Snow White, the queen of the world, and she's the boss, and we're going to have the wolf be this person of color, and they're going to get together, and it's going to be a love story. Not that Shelley Bond is that way, but it, she still has a boss. Is there still somebody who's going to be like, nah, we don't think that'll sell. You know what I mean? And I hate to say that, but I wonder if that is the case, because I don't, again, there's nothing in here that I feel like Bill Willingham is saying anything bad about people of color, but like you're noticing they're not really there, and so we don't know if it is as a problem of its time. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know, because as far as the the time frame goes, um, it. So I, I'm, I'm mixed, but my my parents were married in 1990. That would, okay. I mean, that would have been, you know, a little bit. So to me, it's kind of like I, I guess, but I, I was a toddler in the 90s, so I was not at all conscious of anything. So it's, yeah. I guess it's just I, I wouldn't, I wasn't you know, a, a cognizant person enough when, you know, when this all would have been taking shape and in the world that would have been shaping the story for, you know, for me to be able to tell if it was so big of an issue. Because I, I think, you know, growing up, I wasn't aware that, you know, anyone would look at my parents differently. And obviously now as an adult, I'm like, okay, so that, you know, there were definitely things I should have noticed that you just as a kid, you don't. But yeah, I don't know. I, I almost kind of feel like that's a cop out in a sense because it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it it just in in 1970 maybe it'd be a little weird, but we also have uh, I think Shade the Changing Man was earlier than this book, and one one of their you know first scenes is this interracial couple. So I I don't know that it would have been taken out from Vertigo, you know. Sure. No, that's totally fair, and I'm not trying to excuse it. And again, I'm not trying to shit on it because we all love this book, but I just think. That's part of why I like doing this show is that we can point these things out and have these conversations. And then hopefully people will go read these because we have not spoiled, by the way, we've talked for an hour and 20 minutes and we have spoiled nothing other than you know who's in it. So good job us. <laughs> yes. Um, I think that's a really great point, Kel, is that I forgot about Shade. That was definitely before this. This Peter yeah. Milligan's series, that, that Shade series. Okay. Yes. 
Yeah, not the newest, not Cecil's shade was. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, no, yeah, no. that was shade. That, that was a young animal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which was also amazing for a totally different thing that they were willing to do. No, I think I think that's valid. And, and it could be. A, and again, we don't know. We will never know. But I think it's worth having the conversation. And I don't think if you can't just love anything blindly. You have to look at it and go, you know, I'm a, these are my, one of my many Jane Austen collections are on the wall behind me and greatest writers of all time. She wrote six perfect books, in my opinion, but there's problems with them. You could read them and be like, well, you know, that guy gets a pass for being a total, you know, misogynistic <laughs> douche and he's somehow a hero, but I still love her books for lots of reasons. So, you know, you look at, you can't, you can't say anything's perfect. Um, so, well, that, I think, I, I, that was awesome. I was not, I didn't know where all of it would go. I mean, I, we barely scratched the surface. I do want, before we say who we think should read this, because Kel's got to get back to work. Matt, before we get into that, you said you had another musical reference that you wanted to bring uh, up. Uh, it's the sec- It's the third episode, the, the, the Mouse Police Never Sleep, that title. I think yeah. it's in volume three. That's a Jethro Tull song. Oh my God, is it really? I did not know <laughs> yeah, that. It's, it's on the Heavy Horses album. Yeah, nice. we're re- rereading it this time. And I'll be honest, I had never heard the song until yeah. in the in between the time of reading it the first time we read it this time. I was like, the mouse police never sleep. That's a Jethro Tull song. Oh That's amazing. God. Like, That's nice. And it's just a cute little story about the little mice. And the, the, I love the mice. Like, yeah, those are they were great, great little bits that he just works in of weird little stories. But I just thought that was. That's yeah. something a nerd for me who likes Jethro Tull. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. Because that's who hilarious. doesn't love a good sleep solo? I mean. Yeah. Ex- <laughs> Come on. So, <laughs> so <laughs> like, I love locomotive breath. That song is like, <laughs> <laughs> That's solo. it's the beautiful solos. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, okay. So we are wrapping up because we have, we have kept, she didn't eat for you people. This is free. <laughs> We're giving this away for free. And Kelly Gaze did not eat. So you people, you better enjoy and, and thank her, send her tweets and thank her. So who do you think the final question always is, who is this for? Who should read this? It sounds like we're saying lots of people, but do you have anybody in mind in particular, Cal, that you think should um, should pick these up and start reading? I think, I, I mean, honestly, we're, we're all nerds here. I think this is a perfect nerd book because there are so many, not just musical references, but there are so many little <laughs> Easter eggs to different things that you pick. Like, I'm the type of person who will be sitting there reading it and go, you know, they, they, mentioned something that I'm pretty sure is Narnia and I'm like oh my god it's Narnia and my, my boyfriend's like what what is what <laughs> so it's this is a it, this is definitely a book that I think is for anyone who will just love those references if you love if you love mythology if you love classic folklore um that there's just so many little easter eggs and little details hidden in these books that will just keep you on the edge of your seat and it keeps you wanting to know who you're going to see next um so yeah, I mean this this to me is a nerd book or a, a fairy tale geek book. For sure. I totally agree. I totally agree. So what do you say, Mr. Lloyd? Who's this um, for? Well, first off, I have to jump on uh, piggyback on the, the, the Easter egg thing because I made a note of that in some of the notes I made. And even on page one of volume two, there's a Neil Gaiman book in the background that you see. And he has there's just little things like that throughout, you know, like about a Superman t-shirt here or there, but yeah. things like that. They're and reading comics. That. I like zoomed in on yeah, one of the yeah, comics yeah. they're reading. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, before I say who I think should read it, we didn't talk at all about the art. And, oh, we didn't. And only, I know. And I, I have to bring that up because I think Mark Buckingham is just amazing. Oh my God. Book. 
I mean, there is nothing whatsoever wrong with Lan Medina, who, who starts this series artist. And of course, uh, Craig Hamilton does a lot of fill-ins and stuff. Sean McManus does a lot of fill-ins and stuff. And they're all great. But to me, Buckingham brings the look of this book uh, uh, along with uh, Leiloha as the anchor, Steve Leiloha. Um, one of the things Buckingham does that just makes it next level for me is all the border stuff he does in the border as he develops his style for the series. And then yes. you have all this stuff in the border around the, the main part of the, 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 the frames. It's just, it's just, uh, I would get lost in the border stuff. Sometimes I would be reading it and something would catch my eye. And then I'd just be, you know, in, in the investigating the border and what was in there and how it related to the theme of the story or the particular characters on the page or whatever. And it's just, it's just astounding. I, I, I just absolutely adore what Buckingham does with this book but I had to say that before we moved on no yeah um, you're right I'm glad you brought that up actually <laughs> there's one page I, I saw that blew me away and it's when um when, when Prince Charming is visiting Molly um there's oh right right the, right right, the right. Panel, you can see the um the kind of the border of her room you can see the rat in the wall you can see her neighbors listening oh. against the wall to them like, <laughs> it's i just loved the the way that page looked i was like wow that's you know that, that's so clever yeah you can see why it won all the awards that it won exactly it's gorgeous yeah without a doubt yeah absolutely so i think if you're definitely a fairy tale person this is something you would enjoy uh i think if you like and you don't have to be a comic book person. I think you can give this to somebody that's a non-comic book reader and say, you'll enjoy this because you know these stories from growing up and you'll get something out of this and you'll see uh, how you can look at them in a different way and you'll be entertained by it because after you get over the initial, oh, wow, that's clever. There's such great storytelling and world building, which is something we didn't talk about at all is the world building uh, throughout the series, whether it's uh, Fable Town in, in New York itself or uh, or when we do go back to the homelands and get to see some of the other uh, lands that these these fables come from, there's just so much. I mean, it's just done so so masterfully. Uh, but I think it goes to some of that likes fairy tales and some of this, even a non-comic reader, you can draw into comics through it. That, that's who I would that's who I've tried to talk to people about it. But, you know, some people, they hear the word comics and they immediately go, Ugh, you know. <laughs> yeah. I never know where the conversations are going to go. I, I had a couple of things and I was like, oh, these will take 10 minutes. And then they took the full hour. But I think it was a worthwhile conversation. And no, I agree. I think um, Buckingham's art helps the world building. And I wonder, and they do in the back of the collective, if you get the, um, the, the ultimate editions as they were, they're like, um, so there's, so there's 22 volumes, but if you get the 15 volumes of the expanded, expand, like the library editions kind of, they have right. scripts and stuff in the back of those. Ah. So you'll okay. see, you can kind of get a sense of how much Bill wrote and how much Mark did. And it's, it's, I think it's a lot of give and take. It's not an Alan Moore script where it's like on this page, I want this guy to have two fingers up. You know, it's not like that detailed, but, but if you get a chance to check those out on the Hoopla Digital on the, um, through your library app, you can get the advanced, I think through volume, they have the expanded editions of volumes one through seven. So that is essentially the first half of the series, the of initial battle up until the big uh. end of, you know, seven times. So then in the back of every one of those, there's like extra art sketches. Those are really cool. I would say, check those out to get an idea of okay. how they wrote it. So if you get a chance to, to see those, 
Um, I know you're a collector, so maybe you'll end up buying them all too, but they're really cool. At least check them out digitally before you decide. But I think there's some cool shit back there. And if you're a nerd like we are, and we're all writers, seeing how he writes a script is cool because everybody yeah. has a different script writing. You know, like Cullen, right, Bunn right. And, Cullen Bunn and Tyler, they kind of have a shorthand that they write for each other where other people are like, I want, I know exactly what I want on each panel. Mm -hmm. So I agree. The world building is beautiful. I think, I think it is, you know, and you know, cause you're an art history person, but I feel like um, this is one of those sense where Buckingham is a true artist, just happens to be working in, you know, I mean, he's like, like to me, yeah. Jim Lee, there's some Jim Lee covers that I want, you know, like I would have full poster size on my wall that they're that good. I think, I think, you know, Buckingham is up there. He's, he's not maybe Mount Rushmore, but he's, he's at least in the parking lot. I think he takes advantage of the whole page to make the whole page. Yeah. Uh, takes it as it looks at it as a whole page, not just you know individual panels. And especially when he gets those borders going, there's so many clever things in there that just I don't know add to the experience. I mean, like I said, I mean, there's many times I just stopped and got lost in the in the in the borders and would hold the book out to look at the whole thing to get the whole layout and image and you know the way the movement is and the action through the through the whole page as opposed to just you know thinking of it as a sequential art as which it is but thinking of it as a, a whole page as a piece of individual art and i think the framing bit really adds to that and you think of some of those uh paintings uh that you'll see in a museum that have this huge ornate massive frame and you know you're there to look at the the art in the frame but then you look at the frame and it's just as much a part of it as the art inside sometimes it's it's i don't know it's to me it's just next level that you know, totally he did he deserves all the accolades he gets it's there's no doubt about that there's no doubt about it so well i appreciate you guys being here and so tell everybody where they can find you give all your outro stuff where people can find you dc comics after dark yes oh okay all right so <laughs> You can find me on Twitter at Kel Gaines Wright. Um, you can find me doing the regular news podcast for DC, uh, DC Comics News. And you can also find me doing DCN After Dark on YouTube for DC Comics News. Mr. Lloyd, obviously on this very network, but you're everywhere. You're, you are gonna be on 20th Century Geek coming up. You've got stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, a couple of months ago, at the beginning of March, I was, I had like, I was on a podcast every day. It was awesome. crazy. It was crazy. It was an unbelievable week of trying to record and things are coming out and you're like, I recorded that and that's coming out this week too. Oh yeah. my gosh, it was nuts. Uh, but yeah, I, I got a little spur to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to record with Scott tomorrow, actually. Right, yeah. Uh, tomorrow morning I'm going to record with Mike on Monday uh, for some kind of crossover between star wars and classic comics and maybe even he's going to run it on genuine chit chat also i don't nice. know how i don't know how he's going to do it but he, it's going to be uh we're going to talk about uh, old star wars comics obviously uh since uh, i've been reading some of those lately uh but where can you find me i am at twitter at matt b underscore lloyd i think i said that right i hope i did you I can also right. yeah. you can also follow the classic comics show at comics lloyd on twitter i also put up a email address for the classic comic show if you want to talk that way uh classic comics mbl at gmail.com and of course uh reviews weekly uh 
uh, DC Comics News. Uh, and oh, and the news about the Black Panther book finally getting a publishing date. So we'll have a, another chapter coming out in that, not till uh, 2022, but that's okay. Just getting the good news is, is enough to, to get you excited. Yeah, because, you know, you, well, and they, they wanted to, well, obviously with that, the tragedy and the COVID, both things, they had to yeah. push the movie back. So yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's fair. You want to coincide with it. You don't want to, you, you want to hit that in the right, you know, it sucks that people can't read what you wrote sooner, but it'll, it'll be more important in the moment. You got to capture the moment. So um, that's awesome. Well, thanks, man. Thank you, Cal. That was so great. I just, I love talking to you guys and um it's just delightful just to I love talking to I mean I know we're all nerds but but the thing that I like about the team that that Damien has assembled over there um is that we're not just like you know mouth breathing nerds we're all thinky people we all have really I mean you read our reviews you read our stuff it's like like the one that I just wrote about the final girls a comicsology book um I struggled it took me a week to write that it's not that long it's like only 600 words but I couldn't I wanted it to be something that it wasn't. And I had to like grapple with my own expectations of what I wanted it to be and then what it was. And like also being cognizant of this is a book about women written entirely by women about the trauma that women suffer in the world, but also mm. in comic books. And so it's really important, but I just mm. feel like artistically there were some problems with it. And so it was like knowing that I could take my time with it and try to get it out what I wanted to say while being aware of what the importance of it I think everybody should read it but they should also go in with it knowing you know as a comic book as a form it has some problems but as a story it's important you know so I just think that's what I love about at DCN you know they're not they're not expecting us I mean yeah we've got a format that we follow like positive negatives or whatever but we can say what we want to say in there and so I just think we're just a, a group of I think really smart thoughtful nerds and so I appreciate getting to know you and the team that has been assembled and having you guys on We'll do something else again, you know, with both or all or. Yeah, I just love talking with everybody about comics and stuff. I mean, you know, I know. on the, the Slack channel, you'll get into something. Oh, with somebody so talking about something. Yeah. And, you know, it's usually me and Derek starting things and making Monty Python jokes on the side. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I even jumped on one of some Josh's serious Twitter or Facebook post the other day with a Monty Python reference that I don't think he got at all. But Derek came back immediately with something. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm not on Facebook, so I don't, I don't have that. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. But I mean, even watching you and Josh argue when Wonder Woman 94 but, uh, came out, you guys had it out, you and Josh on our Slack channel. Oh. <laughs> and, um, but you know, but I mean, the, oh, yeah. the thing, and that may seem silly to people to be like, why would you guys get, but it's because it's what you, when you care about something, when you're passionate about something, whatever it is, yeah, your, your, I mean, it, you have thoughts. And I think being able to argue and debate and you and Josh are fine. It's not like you guys hate each other or anything, but it was really great to read and to watch that happen and to be like, this is what intellectual debate looks like. And I think, I think this show and us having this conversation and, and while that took a turn at the end, um, I think what Kel said about the the thing, like, you know, wait, you know, that's, that's a cop out. And I'm glad she said that. I'm glad she called me on that. And I think that's yeah. important to say because, because you need to hear all sides. And, and I think, this kind of art creates a place where we grew up. We're older than Ke we're way older than Kelly. I didn't realize how much older than Kelly we are. But um, she she, sa she says she was in second grade in two thousand two. Yeah, my daughter was four in two thousand two. So yeah. she is. Um, but just the fact that you can, you know, because there used to be a time when you could have a debate and you could you could disagree vehemently 
and have it be a thoughtful yeah. conversation. And that hopefully if we didn't change yeah. each other's minds, at least the people listening yeah. have their minds changed. So I feel like that's what I love about yeah. the people we hang out with and get to know. And so, yeah, we'll definitely figure that out in the book. When you're talking to Mike, I know he wants to do it too. So I will trust the brain trust of you and Mike to figure <laughs> out how to do the, the round table. I'm so excited about that. That'll be great. Yeah. I, I, uh, I didn't, I didn't mention when you asked about why, but I, I really wanted to talk to Kelly because I like meeting other people in the group. And, and I thought also was like, she likes something I like perfect opportunity to talk about it together for the show, but also then I get to meet somebody else. I yeah. just like having that. It's, it's so much, it's been so much fun. And, you know, even, you know, it's all for me started since COVID times, as far as being uh, these virtual experiences where you're looking at somebody on a computer uh, you know I was we were on the slack channel and stuff before but this is so much more real you know there's a face now you know that when I think of Tony on the slack channel yeah. I, I have Tony's face because yeah, my picture of, is Fred Flintstone it's uh, Steve yeah, Hughes yeah. Friend. yeah that's what I am yeah yeah I don't even know what mine is I can't remember is it my face I, can't it is, I think you're I think you're smirking. It is my I think face. your face is turned oh, to the I, side I, yeah you're like got this really yeah. great great smile yeah, Derek is him as a little kid. Yeah, that's yeah. his picture. Yeah, yeah. So we don't know. And and I, Steve has that weird Batman image. It's like, yeah, like, yeah. What's he right? really like? What's he really look like? Oh, that's uh, what he really looks like. Okay. Yeah. No, I agree. I love it. Um, Carl, you know, Carl's coming on again in a few weeks. We're going to talk Blade Runner. And so yeah, it's like so for me and you guys aren't that far away from each other. So maybe one day I, when COVID's over, we, you'll get. To we have to get together. We have yeah, Carl, have- it's so fun, and and you make the connections, and like you said, you and you and one of your writers, you guys talk about Rush. You're not even talking about comics, but you you know, yeah. it's like such a, <laughs> yeah, it's it's so cool. It's like such a nerd culture. I mean, growing up, I always said, you know, people who comic nerds are the friendliest people. We'll we'll just talk about. We just want to talk. So whatever. It's the beautiful thing about it. And the guys at the Comics Motion, they let us just do this. With um, the average podcast come no responsibility. That's what they say. That's right. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. So anyway, well, this has been great. Thank you. Thanks, Kel. Thanks, everybody, for listening to us talk about this. It's, you should all read this book. It's so good. Um, book nerds, you know, um, comic nerds, it's for everybody. There's a little something for everybody. Um, so if you want to follow me, I'm at Twitter at Tricycle Boombox, or you could go to my website, AR Farina, if you don't like Twitter. I'm not on the other social medias because I don't understand them and I get stressed out. Like Facebook seems like a lot to me and I know Instagram, I don't understand. So and that's okay. I'm just an old man. So here's Mouse Please Never Sleep, which is a great song title I've never heard before. So you all will get to hear it together.